0: Happy New Year! (laughs) What a year it has been, and what a year it will prove to be for however many days the Lord grants us. Uh, This coming year, uh, shoot, if we just gauge it by past years, previous years, this coming year will certainly not be marked by ease, but it will be filled with goodness, goodness, For you and I and all God's people who daily commit ourselves to being shaped by his trustworthy word. I know that Pastor Seth already mentioned this during the announcements, but if you were not here last Sunday, we did announce that Oaks has purchased a year subscription to the Dwell Bible app and our invitation to any of you, to all of you, uh, is that you would join us uh, in uh, listening to God's word and reflecting on God's word and responding to God's word in greater measure this year and, and you can use the Dwell Bible app with us if you'd like. The QR code in your bulletin is easy to scan with your phone and you can begin the journey and I was excited to see all the hands that were raised just a while ago that we, many of us have already begun the journey and my hope is that many more of you would join us and it will surely be wonderful. Um, also, last Sunday, I announced that next Sunday, January 9th, Lord willing, we hope to officially begin a 20-week series through Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 entitled, The Good Godly Life. Now, I know we already have the banner hanging, and I'm going to do a, an introduction of sorts. We're not officially beginning the series, but if you have one of those ESV scripture journals. Uh, You can run and go grab one right now even. That would be helpful. Uh, Many of you know Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the written account of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And our hope in studying it uh, at the beginning of this new year is to heed Jesus' instructions and to behold uh, the good, godly life that he portrays in the Sermon on the Mount. And today's message will, yes, play a part in that. It will serve as a simple introduction uh, to the the Sermon on the Mount and really to the book of Matthew. And so using a, a, a rather strange text, it's actually the last two verses of the Sermon on the Mount passage, we'll use Matthew 7 Verses 28 and 29, hear me, as a launch pad. We're going to use that verse, those verses as a launch pad to hopefully set the scene for our upcoming series and set the scene for uh, the Sermon on the Mount and, to a degree, the book of Matthew that we're going to be jumping in and around uh, throughout the next several months. And we're going to be highlighting, hopefully this morning, who the main characters are that are in view Uh, where Jesus' Sermon on the Mount took place and what themes uh, Jesus explores in the Sermon on the Mount and the themes then subsequently that we hope to explore over the next few months. And so you might even look at this morning's outline as... You know, like the old uh, birthday party invitations, who, what, where, when, what. We'll, we'll be looking at like who, uh, where, what, and how are kind of the four uh, ideas that we're jumping after this morning. And if you've not already turned there, um, I'd, I'd invite you to do so. Matthew 7, verses 28 and 29, you can follow along. It's a short passage. Or you can simply listen as I, I read, and I'll do that now. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. That's it, that this is the word of the Lord. We'll use that as a launch pad this morning. Well use these two verses to consider this sort of introduction, considering who, where, what, how. It really can't get much more simple. Hopefully you can follow that. That's my outline, point number one. Who? Ah, right? Who are the main characters in view here? Well, Matthew writes, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds... Were astonished for he was teaching them as one who had authority. Now, beginning with Matthew, this is all channeling through his pen, right? He's being directed by the Holy Spirit. But the Apostle Matthew, who chronicled this book, was an eyewitness of and a friend to Jesus. If you know his story, you know that he served as a Jewish tax collector for the Roman occupation. And because of that, he was a bit of a black sheep amongst the followers of Jesus. If you've seen the, the Chosen, the current TV series based on Jesus' life and ministry, I think they do a good job of capturing the distrust that the Jewish people likely had toward Matthew as one who kind of betrayed them and was a, a tax collector for the Roman occupation. Notice with me, this is going to play in here, notice with me how at the very beginning of the book of Matthew, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, notice how Matthew opens by recording in great detail Jesus' genealogy. This is really intentional. Uh, There isn't anything in Scripture that is unintentional, right? But this is highly intentional, especially on Matthew's part. See, it's a tiny bit of speculation, but I do think that it's it's rightly it, it's fitting. Matthew's Jewish peers may have very well distrusted him, but he wasn't going to have them distrusting that Jesus is beyond a shadow of a doubt the offspring from God that they had been waiting for, and the Messiah from God as promised by their prophets. I think this is partially why Matthew opens this gospel account the way he does, with this lengthy, articulate genealogy of Christ. Now pause with me. Remember with me back to our series in Genesis, where the birth of Abraham was recorded in Genesis eleven twenty-six. From Abraham, God then promised that an offspring would come the same offspring that God had already promised to Adam and Eve in Genesis three fifteen, and God's promised offspring would come for this purpose in order to defeat and overturn Satan sin and death now remember with me from our Advent series which we are not far removed from Later in the biblical story, 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13, God promised King David that from him this offspring would come and this offspring would rule God's people and inaugurate a kingdom that would last forever. So in our memory here, we have the book of Genesis, the promised offspring to Abraham. The book of 2 Samuel, we have that promised offspring being, being promised to come into the line of David. Now, back to the book of Matthew. Let's consider the crowd of people that are gathered around Jesus for the Sermon on the Mount. That same crowd is not dissimilar from Matthew's primary target audience for this book the people of Israel, the Jews. Those who were familiar with these promises, these prophecies, they were holding on to these promises of a coming offspring. This is really why Matthew begins this book in chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. He goes through great lengths tracing Jesus' lineage all the way back to King David and all the way back to Abraham. Whatever Matthew's peers thought about him as a former tax collector for the Roman occupation, whatever they thought of him, there should be no doubt nor distrust that Jesus is the long-awaited offspring and the Messiah from God. Now, there's more. On the heels of our Advent series, Notice with me how Matthew takes great pains to highlight some of the major prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his coming. Look with me at chapter one, verses 22 through 23. Matthew highlights how Jesus's virgin birth took place just as prophesied by Isaiah. He spells it out. In chapter two, Verses 5 through 6, Matthew highlights how Jesus' birth in Bethlehem took place just as prophesied by Micah. In chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, Matthew highlights how Jesus' is being smuggled to Egypt for safekeeping from Herod took place just as prophesied by Hosea. Continue with me in chapter 2, verses 17 through 18. Matthew highlights how Herod's maniacal attempt to kill Jesus, which led to widespread mourning in the region of Bethlehem, it all took place as prophesied by Jeremiah. In Matthew 3.3, Matthew highlights how Jesus' arrival, being announced by one crying in the wilderness, took place just as prophesied by Isaiah. And finally, Matthew 4.13-16, Matthew highlights how Jesus' ministry being started in the region of Galilee took place precisely as prophesied by Isaiah. So all of that, to simply lay out this picture, in the first four chapters of Matthew's account of the good news, the first four chapters that precede Jesus' first major sermon, Matthew is clearly painstakingly trying to convey Jesus, the one we're about to hear from in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is the genealogical fulfillment of God's promised offspring and the prophetic fulfillment of God's promised Messiah. He is. And the first recipients of this book, the crowds, are not unlike the first recipients of this book in chapter seven, verse 28. Remember who they are, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are distinguished by the law of Moses. They are recipients of God's covenant promises, and they are the Jews who are anxiously awaiting the promised Messiah. Now, I'm still on point one. This is pretty long-winded. I'm still on point one, and we're highlighting who is in direct view in this book and in the Sermon on the Mount, and there are several reasons why that's really important, but one is this. Three times in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to refer to Gentiles in a way that denotes their outsider-ness. If you're new to biblical terminology, a Gentile is someone who's tribe tongue or nation is not the nation of Israel and even after the Sermon on the Mount after Jesus delivers this whole sermon that we're going to be diving into for about three months in Matthew 10 verses 5 through 6 Jesus expressly tells his Jewish disciples go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel It's not until Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Are you familiar with that one? It's not until the Great Commission, after the biblical story has further unfolded, and as the church, which is comprised of both Jews and Gentiles, is about to be formed. In Matthew 28, 19, and 20, Jesus finally tells his Jewish disciples, now, go therefore, into all the world and make disciples of all nations it's important for us to see that it's important for us not to gloss over the timeline of biblical history redemptive history unfolding especially during the sermon on the mount those present for the sermon on the mount were the people of israel descended from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, etc., distinguished by Mosaic law and awaiting covenant promises, some of which are still about to they're, they're still unfolding. The redemptive sequence is important, and it's why that Paul, you know, the apostle Paul later explains to the Gentiles in Rome in Romans 1:16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel Paul was a full-fledged, bona fide Jew. But I'm not afraid of the gospel, he writes to the Gentiles, for it's the power of God to save everyone who believes, the Jews first, and then the Gentiles. Glory. So in the book of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, under point one, the chapters we're going to consider for the next several months were compiled by Matthew, spoken by Jesus, Firstly, to the Jews who had long awaited his arrival, and as 21st-century Gentiles, guess what? We have so much that we get to and get to look forward to gleaning from. As Paul wrote in Second Timothy three sixteen, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable to us for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. Now it's all downhill so to speak, it's kind of we're on a mountainside. Where? Uh, Where does the Sermon on the Mount take place? On a mount, okay, point number three. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Actually, a fairer interpretation of the word mount would actually be hill country. I gotta scrap this banner that I took forever designing and I gotta find something that's a little more level. So in Galilee, to the west of the Sea of Galilee, there is a stretch of rolling hills that is very likely the location of Jesus is delivering this sermon. In Matthew chapter four, we're told that large crowds of Jews had been attracted to Jesus because of the signs, wonders and healings he was performing and the hill country that overlooked the Sea of Galilee to the west was an ideal location for Jesus to address these growing crowds. But, If there are any biblical critics in the room, you probably are already aware that the book of Luke also records a Reader's Digest version of the Sermon on the Mount, although Luke records Jesus preaching it on level plane. And Bible critics have an absolute heyday. Well, there's a contradiction. There's a discrepancy. The whole Bible is untrue. Well, is it really that hard? to picture a level area within a hill country that's large enough for a crowd of curious Jews to gather to hear from this healer, this, this preacher, these Jews from the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. Is it really worth stating that the Bible is completely untrue because one author says, well, it was a flat plain and the other says in the hill country? really don't think so at all. Uh, shoot, we might even be able to find kind of a flat plane, and I'm going to keep, dr- I'm going to stop drawing. <laughs> I don't know why I'm doing that. I, I, I had no intention of doing that. So, so the word mount, you know, here we are, we're, we're talking overlooking the Sea of Galilee to the west in the hill country, and it's got to be a large enough place for these Jews. There's a crowd that is amassing Because of the healing work that Jesus is doing. He's beginning to announce the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And there are lots of curious Jews that are gathering from around the region. All right, so what, point number three, what are we going to be reading and reflecting on and responding to over the next few months as we study Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Essentially, what is it that left the crowd so astonished in our little launchpad passage from Matthew 7? well, I'll, I'll, I'll make a little intro or segue or whatever you want to call it you know the author Ayn Rand I didn't know that's how you pronounce her name until I looked it up she's the author of uh, Atlas Shrugged she once described Jesus's Sermon on the Mount as being among the vilest prescriptions ever uttered wow According to Rand, in her own personal philosophy of life, a person ought to live his or her life with unfettered self-interest because concern for others is destructive. So, I mean, if that's kind of where she's coming from and the Sermon on the Mount is among the vilest of words ever prescribed, like, I I want the Sermon on the Mount, right? Like, I'm so excited to dive in. And and, and maybe it was her really, uh, you know, her absent, empty worldview that was informing her, her hatred for the Sermon on the Mount. Conversely, though, Augustine of Hippo, the late fourth century theologian, described the Sermon on the Mount as the perfect standard for the Christian life. Uh, because in this sermon, delivered by the mouth of God the Son, we get to peek into God's mind on the issues of attitudes and conflicts and money and materialism and flattery and love and giving and enemies and rewards and mercy and hypocrisy and works and discernment and judgmental attitudes and prayer and forgiveness and discipleship and obedience and true loyalty and wisdom and true security and true reality. All of those themes packed into what theologians rightly call the the greatest sermon ever preached. And I don't believe that, I agree with the majority of uh, Christian scholarship, I don't believe the Sermon on the Mount to be an anthology of sermons, of separate sermons that were all compiled together by Matthew. I do believe it was delivered at one time, although because of the growing crowd and from the regions that they were traveling. Uh, It could have been that it was over a day or two or three, but I believe this was all kind of a one uh, sermon delivery event. Uh, And so I am so, so, so excited uh, jumping into these themes, attitudes, conflicts, money, materialism. I mean, goodness, I I, I won't read the whole uh, list again, but it is a treasure trove, all of which When we prayerfully embrace what Jesus prescribes in these chapters, it all culminates in the good, godly life that he has designed us for. That's what Jesus teaches in Matthew 5 through 7. And that's what left the crowd so astonished in our short verses that we're looking at this morning. They were astonished by his sermon. They were astonished by the authority with which he taught it. For how or in what manner will we see Christ preaching this sermon? I loved thinking through this this week. He preached the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, not on behalf of our good creator God, but as our good creator God, who knows the formula, the recipe, the ecosystem for the good and godly life. Talk about authority, and also note this with me. Note this with me about Jesus' person. What Jesus teaches the crowds in this sermon, and of course, Within the book of Matthew, this is the first of what's known as five major discourses, the first of five major sermons in the book of Matthew. This is the first, what Jesus teaches the crowds in this sermon. Jesus wasn't intending to be taken as, do as I say, but not as I do, right? He, he, he wasn't how I too often am as a parent. <laughs> Uh, instructing my kids, yeah, you know what? Don't say it the way that I, you know, do it this way. I don't have this mannerism. I know that you see that in me, but do it differently. That nowhere, nowhere do we see Jesus in any portion of his life giving way to this, do as I say, not as I do. He walked what he talks in this passage to the nth degree. He practiced what he preaches in this passage. He embodied what he exhorts to us in this passage. He lived out what he lays out in this passage. And he changed the world doing so. The good and godly life indeed. And so I know this is simply an introductory sermon and really lacking a little bit of vibrancy and excitement. I'm sorry about that. Uh, But it's setting a scene for what I hope as we enter into our new year for as many days as the Lord gives us. I think the maybe the most important question we could applicably answer right now or even ask ourselves and answer is, am I interested in the good godly life as prescribed by Jesus? Am I interested? Am I willing to... To, to seek the Lord, his opening of my heart, my ears, my mind, my whole self. To be humble enough to hear, to receive, to be changed by, and to do what I learn in this Sermon on the Mount. Am I truly wanting the good godly life through the eyes of my designer? Uh, in that asking... Um, There's a transaction there of of laying down at the foot of the cross our own perceptions of what we think the good godly life is and asking the Lord to humble us and to open us up to this possibility that we have sold ourselves quite short, that there is so much more that God wants us to to, to walk in and to receive, to be. Uh, And these next few months in this greatest sermon ever preached, I hope will be Uh, an unlocking agent for us by the power of the Holy Spirit opening this truth to us. I mean, goodness gracious, I have repeated it several times over the last few weeks, but gosh, if if Jesus, you know, if God sent his son to die on the cross as our propitiation for our sin, bearing the punishment uh, for the sins uh, and transgressions that we have wrought, If he was willing to do that, how much more is he willing? Now that he's resurrected, now that our sins have been atoned for, how much more is he willing to give us the good godly life that I think each of us in our newness of heart that the Holy Spirit has wrought in us? uh, We all want that. We all desire that. And I think that we, uh, on, this, on the precipice of this new year, as we begin this new year, we're on to something very exciting by humbling ourselves at the foot of the cross. Even this week, even as we read through or listen through the Bible on our Dwell Bible apps, God, prepare us for the words of Christ, your Son, in the Sermon on the Mount, that we may taste and see the good godly life I mean Jesus you gave up your life for us to atone for us and to bring us back into relationship with you how much more will you give us all things that pertain to life and godliness and joyfulness of heart right right so that's the introduction, as simple as that was. I would invite for you uh, to join me in prayer and then Brother Ed's gonna come up and we're gonna sing together and then we can fellowship together over donut and, and coffee to the glory of the Lord. All right, let's pray. Oh, Father. Uh, we are humbled by the wondrous unfolding of your biblical story. How we have traveled in last months from Genesis into the fulfilled prophecies that led to Advent and now into uh, the book of Matthew that you wrote inspired through his pen Uh, Lord, that really he kind of hones in at the beginning of this book on some of the similar things that we've tried to celebrate, that Jesus is the offspring you have promised ever since Genesis 3.15, the offspring who would come, who would defeat and overturn Satan's sin and death. And Jesus, you came in the exactitude of uh, the spelled out prophesied word Throughout the Old Testament, you came in that exact way that you should, Lord, uh, you should diminish any doubt in us, that any doubt in us would be diminished. That Oh, you are the Son of God, the Messiah, Savior of the world. You are to be worshipped as worthy, uh, cherished as lovely, um, feared as fearsome, uh, adored as... Uh, as beautiful and, uh, and listened to as altogether trustworthy, and that is in fact what we hope to do as we jump into your word on a daily basis as a family. We're trying to uh, embark through the whole entirety of your word this year, but also specifically in the coming months as we jump into the Sermon on the Mount. Oh Lord, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to behold, the good, godly life. And uh, give us the audacity to follow you um, for your great glory and for our uh, unending joy. We thank you for the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, our uh, salvation and hope for eternity with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.